you were here last week, you'll know that we're in a series called Seven Letters for Seven Churches. And we're reading through basically the first three chapters of, of Revelation. And the thing you need to know about Revelation, I know that most of you are aware of this, is that it's a different genre of writing. It's a different literary style. We call it apocalyptic. It differs to most other books in the Bible. And so you do have to read it somewhat differently. You've got to understand that. It's different to the rest of the Bible, except for perhaps um, a large chunk of Daniel in the Old Testament also shares that, that's, that writing style as well. But it's, filled, it's, it's a vision that, that Jesus gave to John. It's filled with symbols, but those symbols aren't meaningless. They mean something, something important. And, that, and that's often the part that can bring some disagreement within the church. And how do we interpret these symbols and, and what um, John is saying in this revelation that Jesus has given him? If you've ever studied Revelation, you'll know there's different interpretations or different views. We call them pre-millennial, post-millennial, and amillennial, amongst other slight variations within that as well. And um, I really don't mind which one of those interpretations you, you actually go along with. This, but there's, there's, it's truth and it's God's word. And there's something important in there for us to understand. There's, there's a vision that points to God's sovereignty. And the conclusion of this time. And the beginning of a new time. A new heaven and a new earth. And it, and it wraps up the big picture that the Bible brings of life. You know? And it started with the garden all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. And, and in a way, in a sense, it kind of finishes with the garden. You know, When things are restored, the, the tree of life and the tree of life at both ends. It was later in his life that John found himself held captive. Not John the Baptist, this is John the disciple. He was, he was held captive on the island of Patmos, uh, and it was there that he received this vision and he wrote down what he was told. So last week we, we started with some of chapter 1. You know, that, was, that was our, our intro um, into this series. And Jesus used the symbolic image of a lampstand. And you'll notice this morning there's a second lamp on stage. So we had one last week. I'm hoping to get to seven lamps by the end of it, okay? I've only got two. And these, yeah, these are my two. So I'll be borrowing some from somewhere. But it's a representation of the church. It means something. If there's a lampstand, if we're reading the words of Jesus correctly, if there's a lampstand, there's a church of Jesus, you know, symbolically. Obviously, God doesn't deliver a physical lampstand and say, here you go. He, he's, he's saying this, this symbolizes something. It's the manifest presence of Jesus. In that congregation. That's, that's what I think it, it symbolizes. You know, and, and it says, when that manifest presence of Jesus is there, that, that means that that church, that's a church of Jesus. It belongs to him. It's, it's the congregation. And I use the word congregation deliberately because the, the church is, and you've heard this before, the church is not the building. In fact, I'm going to say, it's not even just you and just me, it's us when we congregate together, when we gather with the presence of Jesus. That's the church. But it's when we gather for the right reason. There's something special about the gathering of believers. And when the presence of Jesus is manifest, you know it. He's there. 
Not only does Jesus live in all of us, those who believe that is, there is that manifest presence of Jesus in our gathering. Let me just remind you of chapter 1. This is from last week, verse 12. John's writing, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. And then John goes on to explain that the lampstands represent the seven churches that that Jesus wants to write to. There's obviously a lot more than seven churches in this time, and I'm sure his presence was in most of them, but he's using these seven. But Jesus was standing in the middle. And as we learned last week in that first letter to Ephesus, he warned them about needing to get back to their first love. That's, it was the first letter. This is the most important. Well, I don't want to say the most important, but this is important. I want to talk about this first. Jesus warned, get back to your first Love. He specifically said, church, you no longer love me and each other like you first did. That was his, that's what he had, I guess, against that church, if you want to put it that way. That's what he was concerned about. In other words, he was saying, love has gone missing from the church here. And, and I'm concerned about it. And so he gave him a really important warning. In verse 5b, he said, if you don't repent, this is in chapter 2, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Like, I feel like Jesus is saying to this congregation, my presence can't be manifest in your gathering if you don't love. Because I am love. I can't manifest there. I can't be there in in that way if love is missing in in the church. I'll withdraw it. It doesn't mean that we're not saved. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't live in me. There's something special about our gathering where the the presence of Jesus, the presence of his presence is manifested here. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Love for me and love for others. And a church that understands and practices that real agape, sacrificial love, it's like Jesus said, I can be there. My presence will be, will be there in that way. It just can't be faked. And that's why Jesus uses the word repent. You know, it's not an old-fashioned, legalistic word, fundamentalist sort of thing. Repent is, shouldn't be out of fashion. It's, it's, it's Jesus saying, you know, it's more than just faking it. I actually want you to make a, um, a life decision, a heart decision, a head decision, that I am just going to care for people. I am just going to love people. I am going to love God. I'm going to do things to prove it, to show it, until I get it. You know, it's not fake it till you make it. It's actually repentance. It's different. Everyone with me so far? That was the first letter. So, you know, there's six to go. And I feel like number one was pretty good. So this week is the second letter to the the next church in this district. Let's bring the map back up again just to remind you uh, why these seven. There's John down at Patmos in the bottom corner there with the circle around it. And these seven churches were in this district right off the coast from where he was held. And they're all linked by this road. Number seven is is, um, somewhat symbolic and meaningful as well. It means completeness. You know, and so that number pops up a lot, particularly in Revelation. But this was like a district of churches, and and actually the order that the letters are written in follows that road in that clockwise direction. It's a reminder. Actually, let's go to the letter. 
Interesting fact before I do. Uh, this town, or this letter was written to a church in Smyrna, and it's, the, it's actually the only town out of that seven that actually exists still today. And you'll find it in modern-day Turkey with a different name. From what we know, it was a small church. But even though it was a small, Jesus really loved them. You know, it's a bit like this morning, you know, everyone's coming to the second service because of the lunch. But Carrie was really, I think it was so good what she said. It doesn't matter when, when you're small. If two or three are, are, are gathered in my name, there's a church. You know, the presence of Jesus, if they're loving. The lampstand's there. So here we go, short letter, Revelation 2, 8 to 11 today. So starting in verse 8, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last who was dead, but is now alive. You know, just a quick side note, this whole write to the, the angel of the church uh, thing that we read it with every single letter, has a few different thoughts on what that actually means. It, it, it could be that there is a, like an assigned angel to every church, like a guardian angel, I guess you could say in some ways. It could simply be the fact that angels were often the messengers, weren't they? And so this is, hey, bring this message to this church. Some say, and I'm not sure if I completely agree with this one, but some say it's a symbolic... Um, or it symbolizes the leader or the pastor of the church. So it could be a letter directly to the, to the pastor. It doesn't matter. It's not worth getting bogged down on this. It's not the main point, but it keeps coming up, and I thought you might wonder what that was all about. Whatever happens, it was like, this is a letter to a messenger to the church. All right? So verse 9, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, you remember last week Jesus said to the church in Ephesus that he sees everything about them. Everything they do, he says, I see you. And again, it's a reminder that Jesus sees us, whatever, wherever we are in the world, whatever's going on, whatever's happening in our life, he sees us, the good and the bad. And the church may be able to hide some things from the world, but we can't hide anything from Jesus. He's the one we answer to, and he's the one that we want to please. And so we're, we're seeing in these letters, in a way, he, in some parts of these letters, he's holding us to account. What we do behind closed doors and in secret is more important than what we do in public. It always comes out in the end. Who we are is more important to Jesus than what we do. Now, I would hope that what, who we are flows into what we do. But who we are is what, what matters to us. He sees us, he knows us, and he also sees our struggles. And for this particular church, they're, they're actually suffering big time. We'll find out in a minute a little bit more about that. But he, he does mention poverty. You know, financially, they're in Poverty, and, and I, uh, when I was reading about that this week, some people suggested it, it's a spiritual poverty that Jesus was talking about. I don't think it is, given what he's writing in this letter. In fact, the Greek word, I checked it, it does mean financial poverty. 
this small church was doing it tough in a lot of ways. But Jesus wants to remind them, hey, church, you know, my, my people, you, you're rich. You're rich. The lived benefits and the eternal inheritance for followers of Jesus far outweighs any poverty or loss of liberty that we, that we can experience or that a lot of people do experience in this world. And then he goes on and he says, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Pretty, pretty direct words. Something we need to know in the context here is that in, in this time in history, the Roman emperor had declared himself divine. He was God. Like, that's pretty cool, eh, if you can do that. Decide that you're God and everyone actually has to, has to worship you. But Judaism was actually, it was uh, one a, a sanctioned religion. Christianity wasn't. Some of the Jews, and I say some because we've got to be careful how we talk about these things, but particularly the synagogue in this town, we're, we're persecuting the Christians. So you've got the Roman government against you and it appears in this town anyway that the Jewish synagogue, and, and in a lot of ways they were connected to people if they were um, uh, Messianic Jews, you know, they believed in Jesus. They're, they're, it's like they're people, they're against them. Everything's coming against them and against you. There's a lot of pressure for this small church. Like you've got to put yourself in their, in their shoes. You know, they're financially poor as well. The Roman emperor's against you, not a sanctioned religion. And it, and it kind of feels like the people that should be your friends aren't. They're coming against you as well. But Jesus reminds them he sees it. He sees it. He knows what's going on. He goes as far as declaring that synagogue or that gathering over there, synagogue, I said gong, synagogue, <laughs> that synagogue, that gathering over there, like this these are Jesus' words, not mine, okay? But he says, that, they belong to Satan. They don't belong to him. That group, we've got a group of people who claim to be God's people, and somehow they've ended up being tools of the devil. Now, I'm sure they were on the right path. Clearly they weren't. And so in light of that, not the Christian church, but just considering this particular synagogue at the moment, in light of that, I ask the question for ourselves, can a Christian church also inadvertently end up being used by Satan, by the devil? I mean, I, I, I get that the synagogue were not followers of Jesus, but they were following the great, were they following, or they should have been following the greatest commandment to love God and love their neighbors and to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's all Old Testament covenant stuff. But somehow they've gone away from that. They've gone off course. And Jesus is saying, love is so missing over there now that they, be they belong to Satan. And it's a warning that followers of God and his church can lose their way. You know, they weren't loving their neighbor. They were part of the persecution of people. Yeah, they believe different things now. But if they were following what God had told them through the Old Testament, they wouldn't be persecuting him like that. Love had gone. Jesus says, claiming to represent God and not love him. 
she actually says it's like blasphemy in a sense. You know, hey, I'm a follower of God, but I love, I'm no good at loving people. It's, it's like a form of, form of blasphemy. When a Christian church does that, you know, the lamp, I think that's when the lamp starts to get carried off stage, right? You thought that was good, now we're going to go to the hard bit. <laughs> I must admit, when I read the letter this week, I thought, how am I going to preach on this? <laughs> what have I done? I've committed myself to one letter a week. Yeah, well, God was good. Because this is not the kind of church or kind of letter, sorry, that any church wants to hear. All right. Remember last week, I inserted Evident Hills into the text in brackets. Didn't do that this week. <laughs> but it is for us. So verse 10 says, Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Can't ignore this because then he goes on to say, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Imagine that letter to us. You know, he loves us. We're spiritually rich. However, some of us are about to be arrested, sent to jail, perhaps the word suffer was in there. And for 10 days. It's not really a prosperity doctrine, is it? But there is something in this that's foundational for our faith. God is clear. You will suffer because you follow him. Some definitely weigh more than others. There will be people around the world who would read this letter and go, yep, I get that. That's me right now. Because evil is still at work in this world until Jesus comes again. Satan is against the church. And in fact, he's against people in general. Sin still abounds. Brokenness is all around us. Families are messy. You know, the church is messy. It's made up of people. But the victory he offers isn't just this temporal one. I feel like this, this uh, letter is saying there's an eternal one. An eternal victory. I can stand here and declare that all your problems will be solved in Jesus' name and we can sing and pray and pretend it's all solved and you can live here on a high hopefully, but it's not always reality. Even though God is with us and is answering prayers. Because the fact is, Christians who love Jesus can and still do suffer. Jesus didn't say, if you have faith, your suffering will end. He literally wrote this letter to a church doing it tough and said, it's about to get worse for you. I mean, you don't open this particular passage for your morning devotion to feel good about your day. It seems like he's saying to these this church, some of you will die because of me. Not very encouraging. But here's what we need to hear. 
the worst thing can happen to us, but he is faithful to the end and beyond. I mean, what did he say right back at the beginning, back in, in verse 8? This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive, right? Jesus died and rose again. He conquered death, and therefore so will we. Yeah? Our faith is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not grounded in my present circumstances. That's what matters. If somehow Satan takes our life from this age, he hasn't won. We still win because Jesus won the victory over death. Now, do I believe God gives me victory in this life and answers prayers and heals? Of course I do. We preach that all the time and experience it. But he also has an eternal perspective that, that we sometimes lack. So I, I won't base my faith on my present day circumstances, although it's tempting to. And maybe sometimes I do. I feel like Jesus is saying, ground, Nathan, ground your faith in what I have already done and what I have promised to do. There's a very interesting historical footnote to this letter to the, this church in Smyrna. There, there, there's a couple of historical accounts outside of the Bible. So we know a little bit more. The pastor of this church was a man by the name of Polycarp. And some of these historical accounts indicate that Polycarp was actually a student of John. The man writing this letter, Jesus' letter, but dictating down this letter, he knew who was going to hear this. Imagine writing that to your disciple. It's probably what's probable that he was the pastor at the time that the letter was written. And what we know about Polycarp is that he actually was arrested for his faith. He actually was interrogated and imprisoned. And he was put to death. In fact, burnt alive. I, I guess I can just imagine Polycarp, this pastor, carrying this letter maybe. I don't know how that works back then, but in his back pocket. You know, and when he's in jail, when things are coming against him, perhaps well. It was really hard. He'd pull this letter out from time to time and dwell on these very words from Jesus to him. To him. You know, it doesn't get more direct than this. Verse 10, remember this. If you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Imagine him just pulling that, that piece of paper out, that letter written by his, um, his mentor, John, from Jesus. In, in prison, why? You know, where's my blessings? I don't know what he was thinking, but the reminder was there. If you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Checking the Greek word for, the, for crown here, it, it doesn't mean like a golden crown that a king wears. This particular Greek word for crown in, in this passage, it's a wreath. It's the prize given to the winner of a race. A competition, in a sense. It's a real symbol of honor. 
You want to know why you should be faithful no matter what the circumstances? Because God is faithful and there is a prize for everyone who remains faithful to him. Paul knew that too when you go to 2 Timothy. In chapter 4 he says, I have fought the good fight. You know, he's reflecting back on his, his hard life. <laughs> I have finished the race and I have remained faithful and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. He will appear, church. You can take that to the bank because he came the first time when it was promised that he would. So there's no reason to think that he won't come again. The Bible's proved itself. He will appear. It could be during our lifetime, by the way. Or it could be when we're, we're finished with this life and we're on the other side. When Billy Graham was close to the end of his time on earth, he wrote this, I urge all of you, to walk with the Lord in a life of separation from the world and to keep eternal values in view. And then to his family he wrote, when you read this, I will be safely with Jesus in paradise and I will be awaiting the reunion of our family in heaven. That's heavy. It's heavy stuff today, I know. Many of you are going through a time of suffering right now. It might look different to what the church was going through in Smyrna, but you're still going through a really hard time. You've prayed faithfully. You've prayed and prayed. The suffering has continued. Have you ever prayed and sometimes it gets worse? Or is it just me? God sees it. He sees you. He sees us. He hears you. And his letter today is that even in your time of suffering, he says, spiritually, you're rich. You've got a kingdom inheritance, not from anything you've done, but through Christ who died so that you would be saved forever. But in this time of suffering, remember, you remember a few weeks back we we read Jesus saying in uh, Matthew 11, I think it was, Matthew 11, we're yoked with Jesus. If it's really hard for you right now, you're yoked with Jesus. And when the weight of suffering gets heavy, he's right beside you. He's stronger than you are. He's more courageous than you are. He's pulling that weight. Whatever happens, whatever happens, there is an eternal prize for you at the end. A reward, a crown. And one day, that suffering will be just a distant memory, a blip. God is faithful. In chapter 1, he reminded us, he, Jesus, is the one who was, who is, and is to come. No one else is the great I am. So in your season of suffering, you can be faith, faithful because God is faithful to us. Why don't we pray together?
I'm reminded, Lord, where Paul makes the statement that your grace is sufficient. So I thank you, God, that uh, I am held in your grace today. And that's enough. It's enough. So Lord, as we run this race now, for some, there's many, there's a long way to go. For some, there's not as much. But we, we turn our eyes to you. We thank you that you walked beside us real close, shoulder to shoulder. And I thank you, God, that there is an eternal reward. I thank you that you were faithful to us, so faithful that you could have stopped at any moment on the way to the cross. You had the power to do it. You never stopped. You kept going faithful to us could have called thousands of angels and didn't faithful to us we thank you that we can sit here we can stand here as sons and daughters with an eternal inheritance that's better than any earthly inheritance better than superannuation better than Uh, all those things, Lord, that the world wants to focus on, God. We have an eternal inheritance and there'll be like a a crown of sorts, a wreath. When we say, when we see you face to face. So, Lord, we put our faith in what you've already done, not in what's going on around us right now.